Hello, and welcome to another of the Sitcom Club's summer spin-offs. This is Hey Home and Cat and Co. with me, your old pal Ocho. Hello. Now we're getting quite close to the end of these summer spin roonies, aren't we? Are we? I don't see it as my decision how near off are. If it was up to me, we wouldn't even be doing these spin-offs. We'd just been ploughing on with the Sitcom Club. Well, you say that, but Sitcom is a finite resource, and until we make a decision on fracking one way or another, then we've got to be careful with it. That was an attempt at satire. I wasn't which... consulted about any of this. Well, I said that because, of course, I had a lot of influence over this week's. It's not really a spin-off, it's a return. We've had quite an eclectic mix this summer. Just to make people aware, after this show, which we'll talk about in a second, we will be taking a break for just a couple of weeks. And then we'll be back at the beginning of August with the Sitcom Club Returns. Way hey, straight in there. Sitcom Club, lots of sitcom chat. If you've missed any of the bits and pieces that we've already done over the summer, we did comic books and wrestling last week, and we interviewed Jeffrey Holland before, and we had our chat about 3-2-1 and all this kind of stuff, and we had our World Cup preview. Yeah, it's all, it's all there. we abandoned one, didn't we? We recorded one podcast twice and then junked it. Do we want to talk about that? We might as well. We can give like a sort of potted version of it right now that lasts no more than 30 seconds. We watched some Children's Film Foundation films. We've always made a point of saying on the sitcom club that sometimes, although we can sort of sound like we're being sort of facetious and what have you, we're really not. And we do look for the humorous side of everything that we talk about. I was worried about that in Game Show Club, personally. Well, no, I think we're, I think we're okay. I think we, we fell on the right side of the line there on Game Show Club. But what we don't want is to become like one of those talking heads. And I'll, I'm going to hold that thought. I'm going to come back to that in a second. But we don't want to come across like one of those talking heads on those god-awful clip shows where people say, oh, Children's Film Foundation, what was that all about? They all had pure flares, but and all that kind of crud. We talked about the CFF films, and we I think we enjoyed them, but we also looked at some bits and pieces that tickled our fancy, and yeah, the overall tone just wasn't right, was it? So, No, it just came across like we were laughing at them. Speaking of talking heads on clip shows, it's long overdue, but I think that those people who have made a living from talking about other people's material as talking heads on clip shows, it's come back to bite them in the arse. What they didn't realise when they recorded all those I love the 1970s, 80s, 90s shows in early sort of 2000, 2001, is that BBC Two would then get them all out again and start repeating them in 2014. And every Saturday night when these things are being going out, Twitter has just been awash with people saying, who are all these people? (laughs) I recognise some of these names and some of them have Wikipedia entries. And what's happened is that a lot of the people who are on those clip shows have had a shorter lifespan shelf life in terms of publicity than the people they're actually on there talking about which i think is quite right oh i'll tell you what though we did stumble across i'll keep his identity secret because you managed to get it from sources but you know who you are and thank you very much indeed for passing it in my direction I managed to get a hold of a lovely clean copy of the crackerjack theme from the Stu francis era a few days ago and this is the one that's performed by Chaz and dave and the interesting thing about listening to the clean version, as you picked up on as well, Ocho, is that when they would play this on the TV programme, the kids in the audience were the ones who would provide the Cracker Jack, Cracker Jack! And, you know, they'd all repeat it. But when you actually listen to like, the clean version of the theme, it's just like, Cracker Jack! Cracker Jack! Cracker Jack! Cracker Jack! It sounds like 
basil brush in like a different continent or something like that and if you just got your ear to the ground you're just straining to hear them but no at some point i think we should do cracker track club i'm thinking actually that children's film foundation club should become our dactari basically ladies and gentlemen if you ever hear oh we're not doing sitcom club this week here mooncat and ocho look at some children's film foundation films you know that the sitcom club has been destroyed mentioned it before but let's clarify again there was a list i believe it was a list at pebble mill of filmed material that could be put out from pebble mill in the event that television center was taken offline and this was the height of the cold war so taken offline basically meant vaporized by a nuclear bomb so there was always that possibility that if deck tari turned up unexpectedly in the schedules we should credit i can't who was it who posted that on the mausoleum club we should be passing off other people's anecdotes yeah i think i think that was an ex i think it was an ex yeah it was an ex bbc chap yes it probably was either himself or the chap there credits then yes but, okay, I wasn't worried to the point where I was having sleepless nights, but there was a little bit of panic in me around about sort of 1995 or thereabouts because I just heard the story a few weeks previously that when it came to, like, you know, the, the submarines that were based here, there, and everywhere that were going to sort of be engaged in any kind of nuclear activity, if it ever came to it, part of their established procedure was to switch on Radio 4 every morning. And supposedly, if they switched on Radio 4 for three consecutive mornings and didn't hear the Today programme, then they were to assume that Britain basically had sort of gone under. And then were to then sort of open the envelope and then carry out the rest of their commands and so on. There was this England test match which they played in some foreign climb one summer in 95, and that meant that Test Match Special was on early in the morning on Radio 4. Now, I presume that the submarine would have been listening on long wave, and what concerned me was just how literal they're going to take these instructions. Did it actually say if you turn on for three consecutive mornings and you don't hear the Today program, then you have to proceed with Plan B? So did they switch it on each morning and hear Jeffrey Boycott and think that's not John Humphreys, and then on the third <laughs> day think right we're fucked, hit the button. <laughs> Thankfully, it never I'm came to sure that. You could get the information to the submarines. <laughs> beforehand there was probably one person at broadcasting house whose job it was <laughs> to call the admiralty say by the way test match next few days no today program so switch the order to if you haven't heard the today program or a test match over the next three days <laughs> they probably even just like code cerise oh yeah okay all nuclear submarines code cerise for the next three days probably a very standard thing Anyway, what are we here to talk about today? We're going back to Drama Club. We are, aren't which we? Which we did at the beginning of the year. But hang on a second, because we have got some sort of wild, perverse amendment to the Drama Club treaty. Last time we did Drama Club, we actually reviewed three different dramas. Whereas this time, we're looking at four episodes of one drama. Yeah, this is a curious little kink. This is something that is quite close to Sitcom Club, but not quite. It's a comedy drama. I think it's close enough for us to talk about it like we would if we were still doing Sitcom Club. But it doesn't belong with our mainstream sitcoms. And the show I'm talking about is Budgie from 1971. Well, I'm hoping you're going to do a lot of heavy lifting because this is the first time you've seen the show, yes? Hang on. You are expecting me to do heavy lifting in Drama Club? I'm thinking, well, your reactions will be pure. My first reaction is that I very much enjoyed Budgie. As I've said before, this is I... never going to be your favourite 
Keith Waterhouse Willis Hall show, though, is it? <laughs> you brought no cow shit. This now, is listen. more suitable for children than Wurzel Gummidge, though. <laughs> Yes. I mean, there was, there was no element of ontology in Bunchy whatsoever. Why have you reminded me of Warzel? I don't want to think about Warzel. I'm sorry. Do you want to explain the concept behind the show, or shall I? I think I will leave that in your capable hands in this instance. Well, I think one very telling thing is apparently if you look at the VT clocks at the beginnings of the shows, the working title of the show was The Loser. That tells you something. And it's all about Ronald Budgie Bird, who is a small-time crook. Episode one begins, he's just been released from open prison for some minor felony or misdemeanor. I don't know if we have those distinctions in crimes in the UK. There's not a great deal more to say about That's it. He is a small-time crook. Pretty much every week he is working some kind of scam, something dodgy that he thinks is going to make him. There is an element, and one of the reasons I, I wanted to bring this show in close to the sitcom club, there is a certain Del Boy quality. He's a few steps down in the morality ladder compared to Del Boy. He's much more likely to not just buy stolen goods and pass them off, knowing they're stolen goods, but to steal. He is a thief. And another aspect is that he is in the orbit of a big time... Is gangster quite the right word? Because he does walk a certain line of legality. But big-time shady operator Charles Endel. Now, actually, we'll hold this thought because we'll come into this later on after we've looked at the shows themselves. But I'm wondering, in terms of their shadiness, where you would rank Budgie, Del Boy, Charles Endel, and Arthur Daly. Because there's bits of Charles Endel that remind me of Arthur Daly, but I think also... Would I be right in thinking that probably Charles Endel would go a little further than Daly, but not much? And actually, as you say, yes, he's got... Some sort of moral code. Yes, we only watched the first four episodes for the purposes of this podcast. But as you get on, you do find some of the boundaries of Charles Endel's moral code. But let's face it, Arthur Daly never openly threatened to cut somebody's hands off. (laughs) So I think Endel says that to Buddy in episode one. (laughs) Bear in mind, as part of our research for this, there are 15 years worth of minder episodes. We haven't seen them all, so we don't know that for sure. We don't know that Arthur <laughs> Daly didn't suddenly blow up One interesting little link to bring up Express. here, of course, the producer of Minder and of Budgie was Verity Lambert. Clearly the two best shows she produced. Put the cat amongst the archive pigeons there. <laughs> okay, what was that now? I've, that's lost to me. What was that aimed at? Was that? Oh, I get it. Right, I've, I've tweaked. Right, yes, okay. thank you. Right. Okay. So the show deals with Budgie's get-rich-quick schemes his complicated personal life, which is really complicated again by his lack of moral fibre and base selfishness. To use an old-fashioned term, the kind that probably would be employed by Larry in Man About the House, Budgie, he puts it about a bit. He's stuck between trying to avoid the law, trying to get rich quick, the personal complications he's got himself in, and the hold that Charlie Endel has over him. It's all a nice backdrop of sleazy Soho. It is rather sleazy. But the good thing about it is that it's not... The things that are portrayed are understated. There's nothing screaming at you. It's not like... Okay, I know these first few episodes were in black and white, but nevertheless, even if they had been in colour, I don't think you'd be getting constant shots of all these flashing neon signs. And you don't have, for example, like music playing as a bed telling you, you know, oh, this is a bit dodgy, oh, this is a bit sleazy part of town. You're just 
credited with the intelligence to figure that out for yourself. And and it, it gives us possibly a similar effect to us, the audience, as Soho would have on Budgie, that it it's just a backdrop. It isn't advertising itself. It's home to him. We're not shown those things because Budgie wouldn't notice those things. I'm not saying that's a deliberate choice, but that's an effect I, I find it has. And another aspect that appeals to me is that the way that things are presented, probably accurately, it's just basically people trying to get by. It's people trying to make a living. No matter what situation they find themselves in, you know, obviously Budgie comes into contact with all manner of different people, but you don't really get any kind of pantomime villains or cardboard cutout characters. It's just ordinary people just trying to get by in the situation that they find themselves in. It's often quietly political. There's an episode we didn't watch which is all about some dodgy pens. Budgie has managed to get hold of boxes and boxes of thousands of stolen biros. But it's not really a story about, you know, I should have made you watch that one. Well, maybe we'll come back to it, because there's two series. But it makes that would make an interesting comparison when we talk about Del Boy and Enterprise culture and the parody of that. This is a bit more explicit in its... I'm assuming it's a criticism, or just maybe maybe there's no comment, maybe there's just a portrayal of market forces and market culture. These dodgy goods Budgie's got his hands on have no value as goods, they're just a commodity to pass on to somebody else. He needs to find a buyer who themselves will not use them, but will then pass them on to somebody else. It's not about the commodity, it's just about moving it and getting a profit on the moving. And when Budgie actually, I think it was the third episode, was it not, when Budgie tries to break that habit and thinks, okay, what am I doing? I'm being a plonker. I'm trying to sell this stuff. Why don't I just use it? Well, shall we go through these one by one? I know we, it's not necessarily something we particularly like to do because there's always that risk that you're just going to end up with a an episode guide of plot descriptions. But I think in this case, it's only four shows we watched. Now, saying that Soho's not being shown as too sleazy, episode one does have a situation of Budgie has to hide a 15-year-old stripper for Charlie Endel. Just get her out of town while the police are sniffing around. And already I've just thought, actually, there's a, that, that's, that sort of has a weird tie with episode four. Yes, don't you right. It's a strange thought, one because yes, played. This, this yes. episode one is played for laughs. This 15-year-old stripper, she's weirdly innocent considering the world she's already found herself in. And Charlie says that she's not even particularly any good as a stripper. And he can't quite understand why the guys always turn out for her. But she somehow thinks that she's going to become a legitimate actress. She's even starstruck when she's just on the set of a commercial for 15 minutes from this theatre cinema restaurant advert. What was it? She asks, asks someone, do you know Albert Finney? <laughs> and the whole thing that she's constantly eating. Constantly eating crisps in the second half of the Sure. So what is fairly questionable situation is, is played very broad for laughs. It's, it's quite a hard one to describe episode one because there's different things going on. Again, the way it's presented is that, okay, it's a bad situation that everyone finds themselves in. And so it's not either condoning or condemning but it's just basically saying okay well this is the situation that Budgie and everyone else is in and now they've just got to deal with it and they've got to make the best of it and that is then how it sort of follows so it's not really laboured that point it, it's just okay well he's found himself in the situation now and he'd rather not be in it and probably if they had 
the choice. Nobody involved in the situation would rather be in that position, but that's just the way things are. So we'd be very remiss not mentioned Hazel Fletcher, Budgie's girlfriend, who's been waiting for him while he's been in prison and has been bringing up his child. Why is Hazel with Budgie? He's useless. He's selfish. I mean, he doesn't seem to treat her particularly well. She seems to be aware that she's not being treated particularly well. Well, I suspect that you've just hit the nail on the head because, as you said, he's the father of their child. So I suspect that that's going to be the driving force behind her wanting to try and make something good come out of this what otherwise seems unhappy relationship. I mean, it does give you a classic little bit of British television class tension. Only here, the cl- it's not even a matter of having aspirations to move from working class to middle class. It's moving out of the criminal class. Hazel just wants to be legit. And she is, because she's got her acting and modelling career. She's That's the reason we see the making of a cinema commercial. Budgie's got that tie to her. She's horrified when she finds out that one of the first things Budgie's done is got to Charlie Endel. Budgie is a difficult character to sympathise with. I mean, I said to yourself the other day, could he have been Vince and just good friends? <laughs> Budgie is likeable in as much as he has the gift of the gab. And he is optimistic. He is not cynical. He might like to think he's cynical. He might like to think that he is worldly wise, but he is actually very naive. We know he's naive because he goes to Charlie Endel and ends up being in debt immediately. He ends the episode 40 quid in the red to Charlie Endel, which is not a good place to be. And that is always... It's interesting. I don't think we've really mentioned that Charlie Endel owns... We've mentioned the stripper because he owns some strip clubs, some private film clubs, and specialist magazine shops. There's sort of a weird link. I mean, you hear stories about people being brought into situations, but basically people being trapped in the sex industry. And one of the ways to do it is to charge them for bed and board and transportation until even though they're making money, they're always going to be in debt to the person who brought them over. Again, I might be seeing patterns and things that aren't there, but it's interesting that that's how Charlie Endel works even for his minor henchmen. Budgie's never going to pay that off, partially because, of course, Budgie then keeps using his initiative and making things worse. Like I say, I struggle to have complete sympathy with Budgie, even though, clearly... Oh, I don't think you're supposed to have... No, I I know know you're not supposed to be approving of everything he does, but at the same time... You know, you're not supposed to hate his guts because that just wouldn't work as far as oh, no, he's a character. I wonder in as much as when it comes to his partner, I can understand that for the sake of the family unit and so on that she wants to try and make things work. But just on the, on the basis of the evidence of these first four episodes, I don't really see any evidence that Budgie could go straight. Take Fletcher as an example. Oh, Fletcher from Porridge. Hey, there's a link we never made in our map of the universe. Hazel Fletcher. Ah, what relation might she be to? I didn't. I've only just. I didn't realise what I just said. Oh, of course. And Terry yes. and June Fletcher from Heavy. <laughs> <laughs> but back to the serious business of serious drama. Oh dear. I think that's another thing because we never released the CFF podcast. We never got to hear about Terry Scott and his filthy film move. Anyway, when Fletcher comes out of Slade Prison for the last time and he says, "I'm going to go straight." He wants to do it for the sake of his family and so on, and he does. I mean, he he gets himself a steady job, and he's always tempted to go back into a life of crime, but he manages to 
avoid it. He manages to sort of hold his nerve. Whereas I don't see Budgie doing that. I'm not, I'm not so well, sure. I, the I can thing is, is that I see Budgie as a different criminal compared to Fletch. I imagine even when Fletch was a wrongan, there was still a certain sense of responsibility in being a provider. Doesn't he mention, is it school fees? Or, no, school uniforms. Yes. Yeah, that's right. He mentioned, yeah, that's right. But yeah. making sure that his son had all the latest equipment, but of course he was doing that by criminal means. But he is thinking about that, whereas Budgie's first thought is getting something for Budgie. Budgie's first, middle, and last thought. Yeah, in that regard, he's quite selfish. I wish I'd watched the whole series, actually. I can't remember the exact details, but there is a bit where Budgie has managed to come into some money. Hazel knows he has it. She asks him for it, and he spent it on a new pair of clocks. He's had the money in his hands, he's seen something nice for himself, and he's bought it. And is kind of surprised that Hazel's furious at him. Now, without too many spoilers, I mean, does he manage eventually to understand why she's not at him and try and make up? I don't know. We keep seeing the clocks for the rest of the series. <laughs> well, let's not go too much into the plot of episode one, because there are other complications which lead to Charlie Endel threatening to cut Budgie's hands off. Let's go to the punchline. So we've seen this horrible relationship that Hazel is trapped in. Why is she still with this guy, even though she's raising his child? He's brought this piece of stolen property home, and he's never going to be able to get rid of it. And Hazel says, well, why don't you take it to your wife in Fulham? Oh, actually, can I just quite quickly mention the first episode of Mad Men, in which we see Don Draper. Now we see Don Draper going around being a man about town, dirty old goose, and then going home to his family. And we said, oh, man, this playboy is actually a suburban husband. (gasps) There's this odd little parallel. We find out, okay, his behavior is bad, but oh. It's actually twisting it. Okay, well, without giving too much away, later on, does Budgie soften? Does he redeem himself at all? Or does he just sort of carry on in that manner? Is there any kind of sort of turning point at which he suddenly sobers up and thinks, hang on a second, I'm a parent. I've got responsibilities. I need to get my act together. Okay. Without wishing to go into spoilers, I'm going to say that the end of Series 2 indicates that that moment is going to come for Budgie too late there's not really definite ending but i'm just going to say that series two indicates that while budgie may not end up in a hell of his own making he's not going to end as he would like to end and the less we see of budgie it's like "Mm, it's all kind of blown up in his face there is a weird thing that series two i'd i wish you could change the order of it because there is a slight sense in series two that budgie isn't changing but things are changing around him if you moved the order of some of those shows and i'm not entirely sure you can because of little continuity aspects but there is a sense that the world is getting a darker place and budgie is not noticing it's very subtle but there's just a few episodes that end with budgie you're gonna have to stop doing this i'm gonna put forward a theory okay this is a potential addition to the sitcom map of the universe but i'm not just adding this because it's adam faith i i do think that there is some logic to this what are your favourite sitcoms that have <sighs> built? Hey? I don't like the house that Jack built. I know you don't. But I'm going to suggest that I think that that's potentially where Budgie could have ended up. Because it's not just the fact that it's Adam Faith, but his characteristics in that 
and his sort of mannerisms and the way that he does business and so on, I think that that is an older, more mature in as much as he's a little bit sharper business-wise, but no less selfish. I think that that could be Budgie 30 years later. I don't think there is a Budgie 30 years later. (laughs) Episode 2, which is, we both said was a bit unusually slow for an episode 2, even taking into account the different pace of early 70s television. That slowed right down. I like that. And I, yeah, I know that it, it's slower even than you'd expect from Well, the, the problem I had period, with but... there is we kind of got the same information twice. Hazel has decided to take Budgie to court, to squeeze something out of him for the upkeep of his brat. And we have a meeting between... The slightly creepy meeting between her and the solicitor who's like oh i remember you when you were this high and he seems because at first we're not even sure what the meeting's about they have a meeting at home and it seemed like he was gonna make some offer to her some horrible horrible offer then we have a meeting in the solicitor's office and we get some of the same information again and then we get the same information again in court i think something somewhere could have been tightened up and really, three scenes worth could have been boiled down into one. The courtroom scenes could have been shot. I know we still have to have a courtroom scene, but not the one with all the same questions being asked just for Budgie's answers as opposed to Hazel's. So I'm going to put a black mark against saying, no, even for 1971, this is stretching things. Okay, actually, that threw me a little bit because I was thinking, oh, that all, all this information has been imparted previously, so I was actually expecting some sort of twist expecting some sort of swerve when it came to the courtroom scene, as if she was then going to start saying different things in there for whatever reason yes. that she said to him previously. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a bit of a surprise when actually it was all pretty much on the straight and narrow. The main plot of the episode involves Budgie hiding some illegal immigrants. But I want to talk about how this is a an example of small p politics. Making a subtle political point with a very small adjustment. Because there's not really much being said about the politics of immigration. Or can we also mention, for some reason, in these first four episodes, which are also, they're in black and white because of the colour strike. Which I think there's a Wikipedia entry about the colour strike. All you need to know is, even after British TV had gone colour, it went black and white for a few weeks because of industrial action. It affected quite a lot of stuff, didn't it? I mean, I know there's on the buses episodes and Benny Hill shows and what have you. And I think upstairs, upstairs, downstairs, I think some of that's in black and white as well. Yeah, quite an impact. I believe they ended up remaking the first episode of Upstairs Downstairs for syndication so they could send an entirely colour series out. Anyway, these first four episodes, for some reason, every single one contains a mention of Bradford. <laughs> now, have you got an inkling as to why that is? I mean, is there some sort of connection with Keith Waterhouse or with his heart? Well, the, the only connection... Let me check where Keith Waterhouse is from, but the only direct connection I personally can think of is that Billy Liar, when it was made into a movie, was made in Bradford. Right, okay. And there's nothing to say that that movie is not actually set in Bradford, because it's pretty... I need to watch that film again to to see the bit where Julie Christie turns a corner and comes back around it, impossibly <laughs> defying time and space. <laughs> ah, now, Keith Waterhouse was from Hunslet in Leeds. It's not quite as catchy, is it, Hunslet? Not saying anything against South Leeds Community Radio, by the way, which is a fine station. I've done work for it. I'm getting mixed up with Hazlitt, which is that sort of meatloaf type thing that you get of Morrison's. You know Hazlitt. Morrison's, which was founded in Bradford. Indeed, yes. But you know, you know what Hazlitt is. Let's just do Bradford Club, come on. Well, okay, Bradford Club. Now, if I was going to Bradford right now... If Bernard I gonna... Hepton, Mary Tam. Okay, Adrian now, if, if I was going to get Timothy on... Timothy West. 
If I was going to get on a train to Bradford right now from Glasgow Central, where's the first place you reckon I should go to, to experience the, the sights and sounds of Bradford? <laughs> well, first you'll notice the smells. I don't know if they still have the Bradford smell, but there was the, I this is, what, is this actually a known it? entity, the Bradford smell? Well, I think some of the Bradford smell went away when they closed down one of the slaughterhouses that was very close to the city centre. And just occasionally you get this heavy, heavy smell of lanolin. Okay, now I'm, I'm going to well, be... But I mean, knowing you as I know you, I, I, I would send you straight to the National Media Museum to have a look at some old TVs and some old cameras. And yeah, I know you'd go straight past the photography and the film. Oh, is it what, what? Yeah, stills and 60 millimeter. No, give me the VT. It's also quite near to one of Bradford's curry districts, so of course you can get a taste of Bradford. So he's looking after these illegal immigrants and flinging racial insults at them. Right, my point is how this is quite subtly political, even though there's not a really easily identifiable point being made other than maybe isn't this terrible. When the story ends, and of course Budgie's cop for it again, he's being used as Charlie Endel's pawn, the story does not end with Budgie. The story ends with those guys. They've had to go and sleep in a railway station and they find they're picked up. I, th- I think it's really a big spoiler. They're picked up by the police. And we've got that song, Big Rock Candy Mountain. A song about the life of what they used to call hobos and tramps. It's a bitterly ironic song about homelessness. And it ends there. Maybe it's not all that subtle, but I still think that there would have been a much worse way of doing that. This is bad, right? Look here. I just like the way it does that. It's like, let's... And this, we'll come back to this actually in show four, which is another example of, don't forget, it's not all about Budgie. Don't be deceived by his chirpy optimism. Bad things happen around Budgie, and he lets them happen. Now, okay, I want to pick up on a point about Budgie himself, because we already talked about how Budgie can be selfish, and his moral code is slightly more off than Del Boy's. For example, you're going to top episode 4 in a second, but when he spots like the punters in the bar in the hotel in episode 4 and thinks, I can fleece them out of a five or a piece, he's just going to go and outright con them. It's not as if he's going to sell them some dodgy goods. No, he's actually just going to dupe them entirely. Things like that I don't think that Del Boy would actually do. But not only have you got all of that, and he's not a very good parent, and he's quite selfish as a partner and so on, but also... When it comes to being criminal, it's not very good. Charles Endel said to him in the first episode, here's Adrian Posta, I want you to look after her, and she scarpers, so he's then 40 quid down, because you know that was the arrangement he'd come to with Endel. And he's tried to flog him some adult literature, which well, hang is... on, h- Hang on then, you've just punched a big hole in my theory about how Endel was forcing Budgie to be in debt. No, Budgie ended up in debt because he blew it because he was stupid. Mm -hmm. He tries to unload some red-hot Swedish action in the print media to Endel, and Endel already knows that it's hotter than Bishop of Bath and Wells' red-hot poker, so he has to dispose of it himself. Then you've got second episode where he is entrusted with looking after these guys at the flat, and then they all do a runner as well. And I'm just sort of thinking, why would you give Budgie anything to do? Because he's just going to balls it up anyway. I suppose partially he has to be a, a bit incompetent to drive the show. And we do see in episode four, he comes out of that relatively successfully. It's one of those where if, if we saw all of his 
moments of competence, we'd be a little bit bored. Well, okay, let me put it this way. Is his incompetence, in terms of the viewer having sympathy with him, does his incompetence lead us to look at him more favourably than otherwise? Because you can sort of say... Yeah, I think oh, it well, helps. Yeah, yeah he's, a, he's a wrong on and what have you, but he didn't pull it off and what have you, and he got his collar felt, and, and therefore he's not as bad. As if that somehow... I mean, it shouldn't be the case that that sort of gets him off the hook. Well, it's a trick, it, isn't it? It's a trick. That's fine. That's a good bit of artifice on the parts of Waterhouse and Hall, so... Well, yes, I mean, okay, I don't want to jump ahead, but just that last point about the episode four, before going into the details of it yet, the, the whole situation is entirely of his making. And yet when he then finds himself in that situation, the very best that he can hope for is to get back to square one, where he started at the beginning of the evening. And even though the entire thing is self-inflicted, you're still sort of thinking, yeah, I hope he manages to sort of get out of this situation because it could be awkward for him otherwise. And yeah, that is quite a good trick. Well, let's, go, let's go straight to episode four because nothing of interest happens in episode three. I know. You just don't want to talk about Georgina Hale. This is not a criticism of Georgina Hale. In fact, it's a compliment because Jean Bird is horrendous to witness. It's a very, very strong performance of a really, really horrible <laughs> character. And her voice just goes right through me. It's great acting it just winds me up something rotten <laughs> Jean Bird Budgie's wife is moderately more intelligent than Budgie but she thinks that she is brilliant and she thinks that everything she says is a really good comeback and she has this thing of slowing down like that, somehow it's a killer comeback if she just starts putting a false stop between each word. And then there's just the bits where she yelps. She starts a sentence and, oh, it's a voice like a razor blade. Has Budgie in some ways met his match with her? It doesn't take much to be cleverer than Budgie, does it? Well, no, this, this is true, but he does use his gift of the gab to talk his way out of just about each and every situation, but he can't really do that with her. And she's seen it all before. She knows what he's like. She's almost another Charlie Endel in his life. She can use him for her own ends. But when she hasn't got use for him, then he, he'd better not be anywhere near. Oh, by the way, sitcom link, the supermarket manager, George Roper's brother. Non-sitcom link, Arthur Pentel or Henry Wilkes from Emmerdale also appears. And Charlie Endel meets an old couple from Yorkshire, lies to them, tells them that Budgie is from Bradford and from Foster Square. Foster Square's not a residential area, as far as I'm aware. You might have to stretch the boundaries of where Foster Square. Maybe it was in 1971. How many complaints do you think would have been logged by the YTV duty office that night about that point? <laughs> well, no, the, the justification is, is that Charlie Endel is lying and is using a little bit of knowledge that he's gleaned about Bradford to give a veneer of plausibility. Now we slip back into Bradford Club mode again. Yes, so. <laughs> the city centre would have been a good place for Charlie Endel because I used to, I was a child, I would walk past and it's, there was Cine Centre, which is a big cinema, and there was Cine Club, uncensored films. And I asked my mum, what does that mean? Oh, a censor's a man who cuts films. I thought that Cine Club was where people went to watch unedited films. 
and they'd sit through 14 hours of rushes. Brilliant. <laughs> Which, let's face it, we you know, there's certain things where I would sit through 14 hours of rushes. Damn right, yeah, I'd, I'd be up for that, yeah. <laughs> Did you think that this was like a premium product, as in you, you pay like a little more and you get to see the full film? Or did you think this is more like a sort of a niche sort of market? I thought it was a niche market. I thought people paid to watch unedited films. I must have been very sophisticated as a child to really be aware of the editing process. <laughs> but also, but you I was were, a precocious little monster. But you were also completely naive as to what they actually meant by uncensored films. Yeah, I just didn't know what the word censor meant. If my mum had said he cuts the rude bits out of films, I might have caught on a little quicker. But I'm not saying that my mum was trying to pull the wool over my eyes. It's just that there were more important things to deal with than damn fool questions about what the word uncensored means. I mean, if I'm walking past the city club, it means we're out on a Saturday shopping and probably trying to get into the Yorkshire Electricity Board to buy a toaster before the damn place closes. I admire the audience's attention span when it comes to watching all these <laughs> you, you're my our audience's attention span with us <laughs> no i admire this cinema club's attention span when it comes to watching all these unedited films but did you never think it was curious that they had only one film come play with me for for like a four-year <laughs> period you don't think we get bored watching the unedited version of that because i was going out of my spell i think, I think what you saw version. was the unedited version you yeah think i think george yeah, harrison think it... marks would let any piece of footage go <laughs> But he had to shoot more, didn't he, after his no, that's, first... That's yeah, that's what I'm saying. That, that's, that's a falsehood, because he thought he was making a music hall comedy, and it was the backer who actually said to him, there isn't enough porn in this, you need to shoot some extra scenes. Crawling back to Budgie. It's all relevant, because I suspect that Charles Endel actually probably part-financed can play with me. We don't need to know much more about episode three other than Budgie. Tries another scam, blows up in his face. Episode four is the interesting one, because... It feels like an individual play that could be separated from the series. I've seen this happen in quite a few shows of this time. Actually, I saw something interesting the other day on the site The Avengers Declassified, which is fantastic for information about Series 1 of The Avengers, the forgotten era of the show. And it mentions... Because we talk about nowadays the whole thing of television shows being story arcs. I think some people think that this makes it more sophisticated that keeping a long long running subplot going is clever it is clever you've got to be skillful to do it but that somehow the tendency for earlier shows to just come one episode a week and almost press a reset button was a sign of a lack of sophistication i don't think this is so i think budgie's a sophisticated piece of work a memo went out from somebody at ABC, possibly the producer of The Avengers, two writers saying, by the way, this is a series. This is not a serial. I don't want too many references back and forth. So they were fully conscious that we are making something that anybody can tune in and it can be their first episode. This one, Grandy Hotel, episode four, series one. And I think, as you said about, we hope it works out all right for Budgie. There is a sign that there are other things happening. There are other stories other than Budgie's. And he is... I don't suppose there really is any way for him to be aware of them, but I think it does something to show these terrible things happening to good people while Budgie just kind of floats through life. Straight away, I mean, it was obvious that it had a different vibe 
to it, a different feel. Odd beginning where it actually had like the title card at the start. Except yes, about... it has a, it has a scrolling thing uh, for all you Doctor Who fans out there. The beginning of the Deadly Assassin, it's like that. A text crawl comes up, sort of saying some hotels are born great, some achieve greatness, and then there's places like this. That straight away clued me in to the fact that this was going to be different, and it was also going to be a sort of self-contained one, because when all the focus initially was on the, I was going to say Mr. and Mrs. Faulty of the piece, I mean, the only similarity is that they're running a hotel, but that's it. But yeah, when the focus is on them initially, and it takes a little while before Budgie even appears, you sort of know, okay, well, obviously he's going to be in it, and Charles Endo's going to be in it, but they're sort of bit players. And it does feel like, if you took Budgie's bits and pieces out of it, then it would feel like a little sort of play for today. It reminded me a little bit of that episode of Public Eye that we watched for the original Drama Club, because... That was sort of, okay, Alfred Burke's there, and he's playing his role as normal, but yet he's a sort of secondary character to everything else that's going on in this. So the vibe was different initially, and... In fact, if I can mention, because you brought up Public Eye, there's just this tendency for episodes in a series to stop behaving like episodes in a series. There's a Public Eye which, for 99% of the episode... It's two characters. Frank Marker, a lead character, and a former client who's come to talk to him about something. That's it. It's a two-hander. It feels strange. There's a historical series called Shadow of the Tower, which is after the success of Elizabeth R. and Six Wives of Henry VIII, BBC did the show that comes before all those, The Rise of the Tudors, Henry VII. So in Shadow of the Tower, the character of Henry VII is billed in every episode but one as Henry VII. And then we get episode five, The Serpent and the Comforter. In fact, let me compare. Episode before it, I'll just read out the character names for episode four, The Crowning of Apes. Henry VII, Earl of Lincoln, Lord Lovell, Earl of Kildare, Sir Thomas Fitzgerald, Morton, Archbishop of Canterbury, and so on. Episode five, the characters are the king, the prisoner, the guard, the priest, the soldier. This is an episode about a heretic, the punishment he faces, whether he will repent or repent falsely, or whether he will go to his punishment simply to keep his honour, simply to state that his beliefs are true, and the character names have gone. It's an individual playlet. You could just remove it, show it separately. It's not an episode of a serial. So it's not unusual for this kind of thing to happen, but sorry, back to Budgie. Just on that point, did you not say to me the other week, that the episode of The Prisoner that was shown... Was it as part of TV Heaven, or was it earlier than this? It, it was, was initially shown as the, part of the Best of British. Oh, of course, yeah, 82, yeah. And yes, it is the episode that <laughs> possibly has the, probably has the least to do with the concept, but that was a little bit more... How do we get this up to the 17 episodes that we've promised to Lou Grade? But didn't you also say to me that, that because it was then used in that season in 82 on ITV that this sends... If anybody a... can correct me, yes, as I understand it Clearance of Best of British made it easier to clear for TV heaven. So yeah, you do get that sometimes you get that odd sort of situation where you have sort of non-representative episodes being shown as a one-off. I mean, for example when Minder came to an end and they showed the first episode 
and that's really not like Minder at all. In terms of like Terry McCann's character, you're not quite sure sort of what style of character he's going to play. I think play. Arthur Daly's a bit hard. And yeah, he's well. yeah, he's right. He's he's sort of like a bit player in it as well. And your Terry McCann is a bit too similar to to Carter and the Sweeney at this point and so on. So no, it really is a, an atypical episode. So an odd one to to use as a one-off. So should we talk about the plot strands in Grandy Hotel? Because because of course the thing is because these are little individual plot strands. Maybe you should worry about spoilers. So, well, let's just say, right, here's the situation. So we start with the manager and receptionist, assistant manager of the hotel. The manager being played by Anthony Valentine, sitcom club favourite. <laughs> and about his relationship with Eileen, played by Sylvia Kay, who's in an episode of Public Eye, actually. The Bromsgrove Venus, fantastic episode. They all are. So anyway, there's the, there's the whole relationship between them. Is he going to make an honest woman of her? And he's brushing those questions away because he's just been turned down for a nice little landlordship of a country pub. So there's that tension. There's Jack Woolgar as Ben Skin, and he's the bellboy, the switchboard operator, general flunky. And it's his mother that's ill. His mother's in hospital. He's trying to keep track of of her and how she's doing and if, if this is the end. Peter Salas, who appears quite jolly and a little bit dazzled. They're not even in London. Was it that they're on the North Circular? But he's still dazzled, but he's come down to London to look for his daughter, who was last seen hanging out with a pop group. And so while he does appear cheerful, there is there is serious work to be done. His daughter's run away from home and he has to get her back. There's Preston Lockwood as Mr. Grindley who is trying to find 48 jars of mincemeat to fulfil an order for a very important client. And Jack Smithhurst. Is it his character supposed to be? This is our fourth mention of Bradford. He definitely that's mentions That's right, yes. Yeah, that's right. And he and his friend, I think that's Richard Butler's Braithwaite, I'm not entirely sure, get conned by Budgie. I didn't even pick up when you mentioned Jack Wolgar before, of course. Jack Wolgar from In for a Penny with Bob Todd. And we recently tracked down what we think might be the only surviving image from that show. <laughs> so that's it. There's there's all these plots. And then in the middle of this, Budgie has decided that he's going to sell an 8mm movie projector and some films to Charlie Endel. But instead of just... I think there's some mention of Soho's become a bit too hot for Budgie. Which actually ties in from what we had in the last episode where he ran off to Fulham for a bit... So he invites Charlie out to dinner. He's playing the big man. He's all dressed up in his. But he can't. Fancy gear. Yeah, but this is the thing. He can't. He must know that he cannot play the big man in front of Charles Endel. I don't think he does. He's stupid. We we'll see him be even more stupid in future episodes. He will get overconfident. He gets overconfident very very easily. So he's trying to flog this projector, and it's not going to end well. And it doesn't. All I can say is uh, this episode ends on a big downer for one of the characters. Well, actually, a big downer for one of the characters, a minor downer. Does anybody... I think maybe one character gets a, a nice bit of news. And Budgie cons another bunch of people. Twice we see him... What's he say? What's, he, what's the word he uses? Mumble. He, what, as in, yeah, I've spotted a couple of mumbles. We're tiptoeing around spoilers, but let's just mention... One of Budgie's cons, he tells a couple of drunken guys visiting the smoke from up north that if they go into a particular room and say the password, they can watch 
a pornographic movie. And he takes, what, a tenner each? Or a fiver each? Something that's not chicken feed in 1971 terms and sends them up to a completely unrelated, well, completely random room where they're just going to bother somebody and then Budgie goes and hides in one of the other rooms while those guys look for him. What a horrible, horrible world it is. You hate Vince from Just Good Friends. Budgie's worse, though, isn't he? Oh, yeah, no, he is. No, I don't know. I don't doubt that. Yeah. Um, I think that... Okay, now... All right, then. Now, here's an oddity. Who wants to be whom? In other words, do you think that Budgie sees himself as Vince, uh, as a sort of blue-eyed boy who's just a sharp talker and, and he can charm birds out of the trees and what have you? Do you think that he sees himself like that? Vince, do you think that... Are there any aspects of Budgie's character that Vince would be envious of? No, I don't think there is. No, no, there, I don't think there is anything. Actually, you know what? We've, we're, we're very bad men and feminist haters because we're terrible for not mentioning actresses. And can I just mention June Lewis as Mrs. Endel? There is an element of Mrs. Endel's character that I think is fantastic. I think you know what it is, Mooncat. Yes. And yes, it does continue every time we see her. <laughs> so I just mentioned that we, we, we need to be more careful about mentioning actresses and female characters. Whereas with the, the dramas that we saw in the original drama club, I was like, okay, yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing some more of these, and I haven't seen any more of any of them since that. But I mean, if, if, if like Callan suddenly turned up on ITV3 or something like that, I'd probably watch it. But it's sort of like, if it's put in front of me, I'll watch it. Whereas, Butchie, I am really intrigued now to see where this goes, and I do want to carry on watching the rest of the season. And it is worth sticking with because while I've said that, you know, you can't necessarily say Budgie learns his lesson, there is movement... There are new developments. It's it's just those first four episodes being in black and white, I think, might explain why it's... So is it just those first four? Is it, is it only the first four that are in it's black and white? It's just the first four, yeah. Come on, we've had Doctor Who episodes being colourised. Um, Come on, ITV. Yeah, not quite the same thing, though, is it? Cause no, with... no, sci-fi people get everything, don't they? And that's to do with gamma dots or something like that. No, there's, there has actually been computer colourisation. One episode, they managed to get some favourable rates with an American company. It was being colourised and then colour recovery came in at the same time. So, But there is one episode which has been computer coloured in a very painstaking fashion. But no, it's, it's a guy who's like doing individual frames in Photoshop that's then... Well, no, he's not doing like every... He's, it, basically, he's doing key frames and that's then they use computers to move them about. So come on, ITV... You could fill another 26 weeks of ITV3 stuff. You just get those first four. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that now that we've got ITV Encore, which if you don't know is an addition to the ITV family and it's exclusive to Sky, that's being portrayed as the home of, of all the great ITV drama and it's slanted towards modern day stuff. But there's, there's like all the bits and pieces in there, like Inspector Morse and will turn up in there as well. Now, I'm really intrigued to find out what does this mean for ITV3, because when ITV3 started, it was then supposed to be the home of ITV drama. So I'm sort of wondering what's going to happen with ITV3, and one way perhaps they could make ITV3 more distinct is perhaps by showing some of the older material. I mean, they were showing upstairs-downstairs until a few years ago, and... It would be very nice. I mean, obviously, ITV4 looks after things like the Sweeney and Professionals and so on. But yeah, Budgie would be absolutely perfect. Sorry, can I mention, though, that Budgie is available on DVD from Network, 
not dependent on our overlords at ITV to just to see it. Oh no, no, indeed. But I do think that there is a lot of there's a lot of comedy and drama that just doesn't see the light of day in terms of repeats on television. I really can't quite fathom why this is, especially if it's because shows that it's not something that people have already heard of. It dwindles down and down. You know, you occasionally talk to musicians who might be playing somewhere a bit more white bread than their normal thing. And so saying somebody said, play something we've heard of. And there's that thing. People will say, you know, oh, Only Fools and Horses, mind. Oh, yeah, I like that. And they'll watch it. They will not, or it's not seen as profitable or a good use of space to try and break something old into that sort of repeat cycle. And frequently, generally your best hope is, is a new station starting out in the, those first few months or first couple of years when they'll plunder the archive before everything dwindles down to the three most popular shows in a loop. Early days of UK Gold, Granada Plus, Cotton Select, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. We should, of course, talk about the spin-offs from Budgie. And I'm not going back to the House of Giant Bill again. I mean, first of all, that Charles Endel himself... Can we talk about Charles Endel? Because he's sort of saying, who does Budgie want to be? And I said there was something slightly odd about Charles Endel's accent. He's got that very strange sibilance. He overemphasizes his sibilances. And yet he's got this gruff Glaswegian voice. Well, that's right, because you asked me about it initially and you said, you know, is this an identifiable dialect? And I said, I, I get the impression that this is somebody who has a Glaswegian accent, but he is sort of giving himself sort of hyacinth bouquet type so airs and graces. What we might call the Scottish equivalent of the Dray Rain accent. Well, yeah, exactly. It's like if Miss Brams, in, in I Being Served, tries to speak in a posh voice, she can't help but just then suddenly have something slip out that was like, you know, slang in Catford. You know, halfway through the sentence. Meet the wife and in loving memory, her telephone voice. Yeah, there's a bit of that going on there. and I get the feeling that Charlie Endel has done some terrible things at his time. But he's trying to move out. Trying to go legit. And he is semi-legit. He has, some of the things he operates are businesses that are not completely illegal in themselves. And yeah, he's so he's trying to become... Well, he's trying to make Endel Enterprises a real thing. Now, actually, on the subject of... Because I said right at the outset about, okay, where do we rank all of these people in terms of their moral compass? So, are we saying that Arthur Daly has... A bit more in terms of decency and knowing when to quit than Charles Endel, yeah? It's hard to tell, cause because these are fictional characters. So there is a certain extent to which their moral compass will move in terms of what works for the episode. An emphasis will be put on Charlie Endel's moral code and what he won't do. But it might work better if, if we just sort of, you know, let's not forget this is a cutthroat guy. My own personal little fan theory, I mentioned it in Sitcom Universe, is there's uh, a show called Big Breadwinner Hawk, infamous gangland drama from Granada, 1969. And they mention how the power vacuum that was caused by a previous serial, Spindor, the Scottish and the Americans moved in together to sort of take over London gangland. So you have the situation where the Americans got out very quickly, but a fair chunk of London's crime is being run by these Scottish guys. And I like to think that Charlie Endel was, was one <laughs> of them. But later on, of course, he returns home, doesn't he? When he has his own gig. But we'll talk about that in a second. But I was going to introduce another person into the lineup of wrong-uns. Grouty. 
Interesting you should mention that because before Charles Endell Esquire, the series starts, we do get a short story explaining the events leading up to what we see in the first episode of Charles Endell Esquire. And it's not a spoiler because it's the start of a series. Put Budgie out of your mind. But in Charles Endell Esquire, Endell has come out of prison. They finally got him. And the description of his life in prison sounds a lot like that of genial Harry Grout. He was on the light duties. He was allowed a radio in his cell and maybe even a television and that kind of situation. It was interesting. It was just a little line that caught my attention the other night when Porridge was being repeated on Gold. And it's the episode Storm and a Teacup where everyone's favourite loathsome criminal villain coward, no matter what you want to call him, there aren't enough words to describe him, the character that's portrayed by Ronald Lacey in Porridge. He's whipped some pills from the GP, and they've fallen into Fletcher's possession. And he then finds himself conversing with Grouty, because Grouty wants to get these things back, because he thinks that that could be bad for the sort of the power balance in the, the prison and what have you, and it could affect his own pill-peddling operation. He actually says at one point, Fletcher says, why don't we just get some pills? You know, any any pills at all. I mean, you know, like the pill, for example. And even Grouty says, well, steady on. You know, there are limits. I mean, you don't want some poor sod being prescribed that, you know, instead of aspirin. You don't know what will do to him. So even then, even Grouty, who is not known for being... Okay, they call him congenial Harry Grout, sarcastically... But even he's got some sort of, you know, there are limits. There's a point at which he's going to draw the line and say, no, hang on a second. I'm not sure about this, but I don't see Charlie Endel running a pill operation. He's a smut man. Which, of course, is not to say that he's not destroying lives. He's making a 15-year-old take her clothes off. Let's We talk about his moral compass like it's a good thing. There's, there's probably a deep element of hypocrisy in that, the things he won't do and the things he will do. So interesting, a later episode, if you want to find out a little bit about Charlie Endel's limits, is episode called Whatever Happened to Janie Babe. It's interesting because, one, you get a little picture of Charles Endel's morality, and two, John Thor doing a Welsh accent. Charles Endel Squire, which is actually available to watch on YouTube on the STV player. That's more... Okay, it's still a drama, but it, would you say that it's it, it's sort of, in terms of comedy drama, it's leaning closer to comedy than Budgie is, for example? It's not so much it's leaning closer towards comedy, it's just that it doesn't have the big downer situations that you get. It's like all of the lighter episodes of Budgie together, but they, they work together as a piece. You told me that there was an unusual detour in the late 1980s, because suddenly Budgie himself returns... On the stage. Yes, it's Budgie the Musical. Played the Cambridge Theatre London in 1988. Now, if that had been a few years later, it would have simply been called Budgie! Exclamation mark. It's not by Lionel Bart. <laughs> Budgie, of course, still played by Adam Faith. Who's... We haven't even mentioned the fact that Adam Faith was first a pop star. Not saying he wasn't a good actor, because he's, he carries this show fantastically. Because he wasn't, I don't think he was trained as an actor... He had a tendency to not give the same performance twice, though then again there are trained actors who do the same thing. In rehearsal they will try different techniques out and give different line deliveries every single time until they find the one they like. Apparently this was a source of great stress for Ian Cuthbertson. He was one of those guys who liked to 
know exactly how the actor opposite him was going to react at any given time so he could get his performance down by just getting it right first time. Budgie the Musical, Adam Firth as Budgie, Anita Dobson as Hazel, and I believe John Turner as Charlie Endel. He played Roderick Spode in Jeeves and Worcester. That's his signature role. Now, okay, is this actually supposed to be Budgie 17 years later? No. I'm looking at the synopsis, and the synopsis starts, The time is the late 60s. The place is Soho's sleazy world of strip clubs. So it's not a sequel. But would Adam Faith not look a bit too old to actually play Budgie late 60s? I think stage is very forgiving. Charles Endel, you say that he, from the, the tales that he tells could have been a grouty type figure but he's trying to go legit and so he's you know got his own sort of moral code now i'm trying to work out how did charles endel turn into the scunner campbell i don't think he did i just think they're related so i just got visions now of a porno cinema being trashed by super grand (laughs) personally i would say definitely get budgie on dvd i really enjoyed it i'm gonna keep on watching it and I'm also then intrigued to see Charles Endel Squire when I've got to the end of Budgie. I'm going to wait till I've got to the end of Budgie. And yes, what the hell, I'll even read a little story in the TV Times before I start with Charles Endel. And meanwhile, you can get the soundtrack to the musical, and I might borrow a copy of it from you. We'll see. I'm not, I've am not. i seen it here for $17.50, $3.99 shipping. No. We're bound to come back to Drama Club at some point. This is Drama Club 2, obviously. If you didn't hear Drama Club 1, it's in the archives on sitcomclub.com. And what, what did we talk about in well, Drama Club 1? Let's try and make it we... a sort of regular thing. Maybe we could make it a bank holiday thing, so we only have to do six a year. Well, okay, so what, what should we talk about next time on Drama Club? Let's actually, let's choose something right now. And I can well, start. shall I let you choose? Because, of course, it was, it's been my little fiefdom. Or shall I let you be advised? Let's not make the decision now. Shall I send you a list of shows that I just happened to own? I might just pick the title. God, that sounds like an interesting title. I might pick something terrible. Oh, but yeah, go for it. Yes, go for it. What, should we try and do one maybe the end of August? or? Yeah, why when's not? The, when's the August bank holidays? That's... Uh, yeah, that's the end. End of August. Yeah, but uh, of course, I don't observe that because we don't have up here. Although we have August, but no, it, it, it's, a, it's a bugger actually because we don't get the August bank holiday in Scotland. Instead, we have this absurd antiquated system where you get all these regional holidays so you have the september weekend in glasgow for example and edinburgh has a different weekend and everybody has a different weekend so nobody can do anything all at the same time and the worst part of all is that you're back at school well when i was at school you're back at school in the middle of august and so you actually were in school when there was a whole day of disney time this would appear to be the end of the sitcom club summer spin-offs. If we're of a mind, there might be one more summer spin-off. Don't be alarmed if you don't hear from us for a few weeks, and we'll be back. And what we're going to be back with, because we have already... I'm going, we are I going want to people to, to see that pop up on Twitter. They're going to see Bing Bang Bong, that's what we're talking about, and their reactions will be sweet. But let's just say, for the very first time, we are returning to a show we've already talked about. Thank you very much indeed for listening to today's Sitcom Pop spin-off. Like I said before, I hope you've enjoyed these spin-off casts. We just felt like doing something a bit different over the summer. And if there's any of these particular shows that you've enjoyed, then let us know on Twitter. Tweet us at the Sitcom Club or you can email us feedback at sitcomclub.com because your feedback will then determine whether we do more 
drama clubs or game show clubs or whatever it may be. I don't think that we can get necessarily a 26-part series out of our preview of the World Cup. I think that was very much of its time. Well, I think in some ways that World Cup thing was just taking an event and looking at its televisual life. So I think there might be a possibility to talk about the televisual aspects surrounding a particular topic. Yes, I think so. We'll be back in a few weeks' time. You'll see what we're talking about on Twitter. We'll announce it beforehand. And in the meantime, Osho. Goodbye. This is Hey Ho Moon Co signing off and saying thank you very much indeed for listening to a spin-off of The Second Club. <laughs>